Thank you. Thank, thank you so much for coming. I was expecting four people and a dog. So this is a very, very nice surprise. Um, let's start. The clocks have just struck 12 and the time is out of joint. And now, good friends, as you are friends, scholars and soldiers, uh, give me but one poor request. What is it, my lord? We will. Never make known what you have seen tonight. My lord, we will not. Nay, but swear it. In faith, my lord, not I, nor I, my lord, in faith. Upon my sword. We have sworn, my lord, already. Indeed, upon my sword, indeed. Swear. Aha, boy. Sayest thou so? Art thou there, true penny? Come on, you hear this fellow in the cellarage, consent to swear. I propose the oath, my lord, never to speak of this that you have seen. Swear by my sword. Swear. Hic et ubique. Then we'll shift our ground. Come hither, gentlemen, and lay your hands again upon my sword, never to speak of this that you have heard. Swear by my sword. Swear. Well said, old mole. Canst work in the earth so fast? A worthy pioneer. Once more, remove, good friend. Oh, day and night, but this is wondrous strange. And therefore, as a stranger, give it welcome. Uh, it's not only the appearance of the ghost here that's strange. Uh, we might notice how Hamlet's failure to locate his father physically is then matched by his failure to pin him down in speech. He tries out boy, true penny, fellow, mole, pioneer. Nothing seems to fit. Definitions uh, split and slide around like blobs of mercury. Even Hamlet's companions start to seem like strangers to him as he switches between the intimate good friends and the more formal, more distant gentlemen. And then Hamlet's speech shifts into a new key with that Latin tag, hic et ubique, here and everywhere. It's as if he suddenly realised that Latin is a dead language, but a dead language that has an afterlife in the mouths of scholars like him. So it might then be useful in investigating what else seems not to be dead yet, or perhaps seems not to be dead enough. O oh, day and night, but this is wondrous strange, and therefore, as a stranger, give it welcome. This question of how far we should welcome strangers uh, is one that writers after Shakespeare repeatedly ask themselves. How should his plays be returned to? How should they be replied to? It's a question that, as you know from previous lectures, has been nagging away at us for over 400 years. But I think it took on a special momentum and perhaps direction in the 19th century. Um, again and again, uh, romantic writers find themselves uh, quoting from Hamlet, arguing about Hamlet, 
even comforting themselves with the thought that deep down they were like modern versions of the hero. They were thoughtful, sensitive souls trapped in a world not of their own choosing. Keats, Coleridge, Wordsworth, Byron, Hazlitt, they all refer to Hamlet more than to any other play. It was like a creative itch they just couldn't stop scratching. So that's the romantics. But then the same is true of the Victorians. Thou comest in such a questionable shape that I will speak to thee. That's what Hamlet says to his father. It's also a good summary of how Victorian writers and artists responded to the play. Thou comest in such a questionable shape that I will speak to thee. Um, in fact, over Victoria's reign, this old play started to behave increasingly like the ghost of old Hamlet. It kept on shifting its ground. Its voice kept emerging, hic et ubique, here, there and everywhere. And by this I don't just mean legendary productions uh, like this one featuring Sarah Bernhardt, um, nor do I mean popular theatrical skits uh, like the Hamlet Travesty by John Poole, which was a cartoonish burlesque that was full of um, bad jokes and sing-along songs and so on. Um, Shakespeare's play also tunnelled its way into many more literary works. Sometimes it surfaced in the form of allusions and echoes, and at other times it gave the writing a kind of lurking subterranean energy. So uh, the hero of George Eliot's novel, Daniel Deronda, returns to England after studying on the continent, just as Hamlet returns to Elsinore from his studies in Wittenberg. Uh, Eliot's hero too is handicapped by what her narrator calls his reflective hesitation. That's in Daniel Deronda, his reflective hesitation. The, uh, the speaker of Tennyson's Maud is also reflective, also hesitant, full of the kinds of questions that are important precisely because they don't have straightforward answers. Questions like, why not? And where is the fault? And dozens more. In fact, Tennyson referred to this poem, Maud, as a little hamlet. And it repeats several strands from Shakespeare's play, like a dead father and a duel and so on. And it knots them together in strange new combinations. Even individual lines are made to sound both familiar and strange. So, uh, for instance, uh, and are for the man to arise in me that the man I am may cease to be, he says. Like a modern version of Hamlet's most famous speech, to be or not to be. In fact, the whole poem is like a horrible dream of what Shakespeare's play might sound like if there were no other speakers. It's like a soliloquy gone mad. It's not Hamlet without the prince. It's something more like the prince without Hamlet. 
And there are also smaller fragments, fragments that resurface in other Victorian works. Uh, near the start of In Memoriam, Tennyson describes feeling um, haunted by his dead friend Arthur Hallam. Dark house, he says, uh, by which once more I stand here in the long unlovely street, doors where my heart was used to beat so quickly, waiting for a hand, a hand that can be clasped no more. Behold me, for I cannot sleep, and like a guilty thing, I creep at earliest morning to the door. Like a guilty thing. Just as the ghost of old Hamlet starts up like a guilty thing upon a fearful summons when dawn breaks. And it might remind us, I suppose, that an illusion itself is a kind of ghost. It's an unsettled fragment of the past that seems to be neither fully present nor fully absent. Sometimes uh, whole speeches escape from the play and take on a new life, reappearing in popular works like this, Millet's famous painting, Ophelia. Um, and it's like a, a sad pun on the word anthology, which literally means a collection of flowers. A collection of flowers. Because that is increasingly what the play came to represent for the Victorians. It was an anthology of scenes and characters and lines that could be gathered together or, like this painting, they could be cut up and rearranged in a new way. But that's just one play. I've started with Hamlet, but of course, as a subject, Shakespeare and the Victorians is so, so huge, so unwieldy. I could just as easily have chosen The Tempest uh, or Midsummer Night's Dream or any one of a dozen plays. And the conclusion would have been much the same. This was a period when Shakespeare became increasingly questionable. He took on a questionable shape. Of course, the plays themselves are absolutely full of questions. Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou, Romeo, and so on. Um, but for Victorian playgoers and readers, they also represented an important set of questions. Questions that uh, required replies, uh, or perhaps uh, retorts, and sometimes even reproofs. Uh, at one point, the editors of Punch magazine coined the term Shakespeareanity, uh, meaning uh, an appropriation, an appreciation of all things to do with Shakespeare. Shakespeareanity, the vagueness of the word, I think nicely captures the sheer range of ways in which Shakespeare made his presence felt in this period. Um, he was central in some areas of Victorian life and a peripheral figure in others. Uh, sometimes he was a great cultural hero. Sometimes he was more like T.S. Eliot's Prufrock, 
merely one that will do to swell a progress, start a scene or two, full of high sentence, but a bit obtuse. And let me give some examples, just some, some quick-fire examples. This isn't uh, really an anthology of uh, Victorian Shakespeare. It's more like um, a cultural equivalent to the potpourri that was so popular at the time. Um, the plays uh, were still popular on stage, of course. Uh, and here they were, were uh, presented with increasingly obsessive attention to realistic detail. And if the theatre as a whole held a mirror up to nature, stage designers and directors seemed ever more determined to make the theatre reflect the world as it really was and not some imaginary alternative. So, uh, costumes were advertised as being historically authentic. Uh, sets were constructed so that um, pasteboard and paint could be made to appear as, as solid as stone. Now, when it came to authenticity, even the extras seemed determined to get in on the action. Uh, this is a, a photograph from uh, Herbert Beerbohm Tree's famous production of A Midsummer Night's Dream. Um, this featured the moon rising over the Acropolis, a nice lighting effect. Uh, there was an entire corps de ballet dressed as fairies. There were real rabbits scampering around on stage. Um, actually, there, there's a good story. Um, uh, one night, the actor uh, who was playing Bottom was so annoyed at being upstaged by a rabbit. He, en he entered with the rabbit under his arm like a sort of furry handbag, um, at which point, of course, it promptly bit him and ran away. So that's life on stage. But what about life off stage? Well, this is where Shakespeare didn't only hold a mirror up to nature. His writing entered something more like a cultural hall of mirrors, like one of those old carnival attractions, uh, a hall of mirrors that stretched it and warped it out of shape in all sorts of ways. How did it do it? Well, um, one popular convention in the 19th century theatre was the so-called point. The point was the moment when an actor reached the climax of their speech and then held a suitable pose of you know, quivering uh, anguish uh, or you know, cackling triumph uh, while the audience's applause then broke over them like a wave. Now, photographers like Julian Margaret Cameron took this idea a stage further. In a photograph, a point could be held forever. Flick through a photograph album and you go from one point to the next, uh, like someone connecting the dots on a dot-to-dot -dot picture. Um, incidentally, this, this brilliantly hammy picture, um, photograph uh, of King Lear and his daughters, uh, features Alice Liddell. She's the girl on the right. That's the grown-up version of the original Alice in Wonderland. Uh, uh, and there she's representing Cordelia, which is why she's looking suitably doomy uh, and, and uh, soulful and unhappy. But of course, Victorian Shakespeare wasn't only limited uh, to paintings and photographs. Um, extracts also appeared uh, in adverts like these uh, uh, from mustard. You see this one here? 
this is for soap, which for some reason features a quotation from Coriolanus. Um, this is a kind of dietary supplement that apparently was good for everyone from teething infants to soldiers on route marches. Um, there were calendars, like this one, uh, depicting heroes and heroines. Uh, there are other calendars that restricted themselves only to heroines. Uh, there were toy theatre sets, uh, there were jigsaw puzzles, uh, there were popular songs uh, like this one. Uh, this is based on Brutus's line in Julius Caesar about a tide in the affairs of men. Although presumably Brutus wasn't thinking about the kind of affairs this sharply dressed young buck uh, has in mind. So, a whole range of different Shakespeare's. Twice Dickens needed to choose a title for a new periodical. Twice he chose a phrase from Shakespeare. Household words came from Henry V, familiar in their mouths as household words. All the year round, more loosely, came from Othello, the story of our lives from year to year. And incidentally, that journal, the second journal, uh, was started after a much publicised split from his wife, Catherine. Um, so apparently nobody told him in the circumstances choosing a line from Othello might have been a bit questionable. <laughs> but there we are. Um, so um, in both journals then, uh, the quotation appeared above the title, like the figurehead on a ship. It made Shakespeare into Dickens's uh, precursor and his guide. It made Shakespeare Dickens's um, literary guardian angel. Now actually, from 1821 onwards, um, to be a Shakespeare, according to the OED, meant to be preeminent in anything. So, you know, uh, Jurgen Klopp as the Shakespeare of football managers uh, and so on. Um, so, so one way of looking at these titles might be that they were Dickens' attempt to be the Shakespeare of editors. But of course there is another way that we could look at them. Uh, it's not just that Victorian writers wanted to be Shakespearean. They also wanted Shakespeare to be Victorian. If novelists like Dickens created characters that seemed somehow bigger than the stories that try to contain them, well, of course, so had Shakespeare. And that might be why, I think, um, when this colour lithograph, which was entitled The Genius of Shakespeare, when this was given away, it was given away free uh, with the Christmas issue of a magazine called Great Thoughts uh, in 1888. And it was closely modelled, I think, on this. Uh, an 1875 watercolour by Robert Buss that shows Dickens' characters floating around uh, just above his head. Yes, Shakespeare and Dickens. So just as Dickens' characters seemed to live outside his stories, as well as inside his stories, so Shakespeare's characters were increasingly treated like real people who could enjoy new stories or they could enjoy extra chapters in the stories that everyone already knew. Now that's partly why um, Shakespeare, sorry, why Tennyson could write a poem about Mariana's life in the moated grange. 
In Measure for Measure, that life is relegated to the offstage world. In Tennyson's poem, it takes centre stage. Um, whole books could be devoted to the imagined girlhood of Shakespeare's heroines. It proved that these characters were rooted in the world of their plays, but they were not entirely bound by their plays. In fact, Shakespeare's characters were escapologists. They were literary Houdinis. Just when a Victorian reader thought they knew everything there was to know about you know, Rosalind or Falstaff or Puck, they proved how good they were at slipping away into other stories and other worlds. The obvious question that's been bubbling away under all these examples, of course, is why? Why was everything connected to Shakespeare so unstable in this period in particular? The stories, the characters, the iconography, everything. Well, partly, partly it's because the plays themselves were still so fluid, surprisingly fluid, when it came to knowing exactly what Shakespeare had written. Uh, of course, there had been critical editions before. Uh, Dickens first read the plays in a British Museum copy that was edited by one Samuel Weller Singer in 1826, which of course might have given him the idea for a rather different kind of clown when he came to write the Pickwick Papers with its star turn of Samuel Weller. Um, but it's Victorian scholars who uh, can be thanked, I think, for most of the work that would eventually go on to produce the kind of authoritative paperback editions we now take for granted, uh, like the Arden Shakespeare, Penguin Classics, Oxford World Classics, and so on. Um, the Victorians were really the first generation to turn textual editing from a gentlemanly pastime into a profession. Uh, in fact, the OED uh, dates the first use of the word Shakespearean to mean a scholar or a student of Shakespeare to the year 1837, which by nice coincidence is the year that Victoria came to the throne. Now, I'm not going to dwell on this, uh, partly because it's a bit fiddly and partly because um, uh, time is not on our side. But um, all I'll say is that editing was closely bound up with other intellectual trends. So, for instance, um, the Irish scholar uh, Edward Dowden told his students that to appreciate a literary masterpiece, he said, they had to know not only what it is, but how it came to be what it is. And then he drew analogies with geological processes and evolutionary theory and the importance of facts. And of course, all of these were central to much more than just playwriting in the 19th century. So this then made the accurate editing of Shakespeare into a little model of truth and progress. Once again, it turned Shakespeare into something like an honorary Victorian. Uh, and the climax of this, of all this um, uh, editorial uh, business and busyness, was probably the Globe edition, uh, which in 1864 brought together the complete works in one affordable volume. 
And the title was more than just um, uh, a nod to the Globe Theatre. Uh, in their preface, the editors hoped that, they said, the complete works of the foremost man in all literature, the greatest master of the language most widely spoken among men, will make its way to the remotest corners of the habitable globe. This was to be a globe-trotting Shakespeare. This was a colonial Shakespeare. This was a Prospero being sent off into a whole world of Calibans. And it worked. It worked better than they could possibly have imagined because the Globe edition remained a standard text for almost a century. It introduced new conventions we now simply take for granted, like scene and line numbers. It was the first time they'd been used in print. It meant that for the first time, a reader could refer to a line like, where the place, in Macbeth, and say it was act one, scene one, line six, and not, you know, that bit where the witches first appear. Um, and the Globe edition even helped to standardise the spelling of the author's name. Until then, you see, he'd been variously written as uh, Shakespeare or Shakespeare or Shakespeare, but not very often as he later became, and as we now know him, as Shakespeare. Now, that's not to say that the texts were absolutely fixed in place. Um, rival editions were still available, still popular, like Thomas Boulder's infamous family Shakespeare. Uh, this is the uh, volume that gives us the word Boulderize. After he censored anything which might bring a blush to the cheek of uh, a young person or your serving maid or pretty much anyone who wasn't Thomas Boulder. Uh, so, for instance, uh, uh, Macbeth's line, out uh, uh, damned spot, became out crimson spot. Uh, and the prostitute doled tear sheet was simply cut uh, from Henry IV, cut altogether. And these days, of course, the temptation is to look at these examples and think, oh, how Victorian, how Victorian, even though actually the family Shakespeare was the product of the gin-soaked uh, Regency age. Actually, we might also think of this kind of thing as highly Shakespearean. Um, it's not just that Thomas Boulder was a mini Malvolio, convinced that anyone who enjoyed cakes and ale uh, needs to be put on a strict diet. Um, it's also that these rival Shakespeare's, uh, one that included everything as accurately as possible, uh, and then one that deliberately you know, stinted and stunted itself, um, these were a kind of Victorian double act. And if the Victorians liked anything along with Shakespeare, it was double acts. And Shakespeare loved double acts. Everything from puns to twins to comic lookalikes. Now in this context, it seems somehow appropriate or uh, inevitable that just as, as people were agreeing on how to spell Shakespeare's name, his own identity came under threat. There had always been some people who were doubtful that Shakespeare's plays had really been written by Shakespeare. But it's only really in the 19th century that this becomes a fully fledged area of, of what? What to call it? 
counter-scholarship, uh, conspiracy theory, nut jobbery. Um, it's a vogue that stretches from the 1848 book on the romance of yachting, uh, which had one digression suggesting that Shakespeare's only contribution to the plays had been to write the dirty bits, uh, to, an eight, to a 675-page book uh, published in 1857 by Delia Bacon, uh, proposing the plays were actually the work, of course, of Francis Bacon. Uh, in fact, between 1856 and 1884, it's a controversy that generated more than 250 books and pamphlets and articles. Uh, a lot of people took it very seriously then. A lot of people still do take it very seriously. Uh, for everyone else, though, I think it's hard to look back over this obsession with the idea that Shakespeare had been muddled up with someone else and not think there's something strangely Shakespearean about it. It's as if someone had decided to take the plot of the Comedy of Errors seriously. But then even when the plays were first fixed on the page, fragments kept breaking off. Fragments kept appearing in other places. I said something at the start about the popularity of these, these cultural uh, offspring and parasites. And we might add books, books like The Beauties of Shakespeare, which was an anthology of quotations for every occasion. Um, and then alongside this, there's the painstaking development of something that would eventually fix the language itself. That book we now know as the Oxford English Dictionary. Uh, as you all know, this, this was, this is, a dictionary based on historical principles. Um, based on examples of real language use. And when the first instalment of the first edition was published uh, in 1884, uh, it became clear that nobody had contributed as many examples as Shakespeare. And he's still by far the most commonly represented author in the OED. Um, you might have seen actually um, news reports recently that uh, pointed out that in fact, many of the words and phrases that were thought previously to have been Shakespeare coinages, like um, a wild goose chase uh, or eating me out of house and home. Um, these, were, these were already in use in the period before he decided to polish them up uh, for performance. In the 19th century, though, it was easy to think of Shakespeare as, as an endless source of linguistic novelties. And at the time, uh, people seemed to feel the need to try and compete with him by coining new words like Shakespeareanism in 1886, Bardolatry, 1901, and others. What's the truth? Um, the truth is, is less glamorous, um, but it might be more significant. What the OED also showed is that even when Shakespeare wasn't inventing new words, he was adding an unmistakable original spin to the words we would otherwise take for granted. Uh, Jane Austen put it much better than I can, like so many things. Um, uh, we all talk Shakespeare, she has a character say. 
We all talk Shakespeare. We all use his similes and describe with his descriptions. And of course, we still do. Uh, it means that even people who have never read a word of Shakespeare still carry his plays around with them inside their heads. 400 years after his death, we still use his ideas to think new thoughts. We still use his words to create new literary works. We all talk Shakespeare. He's part of the air we breathe. Okay, thank you so much for listening.